0: Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Bluff City Church, Memphis, Tennessee. So friends, uh, what I'd like for you to do now, uh, I I came across this prayer that our United Methodist siblings in uh, England uh, wrote uh, about the situation in Ukraine, and I just thought it was better than any words that I could come up with myself, so I decided we could pray it. So if you would, if you'll just Turn your hands like this and just in an offering of prayer. So holy and gracious God, we pray for the people of Ukraine and for the people of Russia. For the countries and their leaders. We pray for all those who are afraid that your everlasting arms would hold them in this time of great fear. We pray for all those who have the power over life and death that they will choose for all people life and life in all its fullness. We pray for those who choose war that they will remember that you direct your people to turn our swords into plowshares and to seek peace. We pray for the leaders on the world stage that they are inspired by the wisdom and courage of Christ. Above all, Lord, we pray for the peace of Ukraine and we ask this in the name of your blessed Son. Lord, have mercy. Amen. 1777, a year after the American Revolution begins, a Puritan preacher by the name of Abraham Cataltus preaches a sermon praising the American Revolution in these words. He says, our cause is not only righteous, but most important, it is God's own cause. It is the grand cause of the whole human race, turning a veil of tears into a paradise of God. The American Revolution is the cause of truth against error and falsehood, the cause of righteousness against iniquity, the cause of benevolence against barbarity, of virtue against vice. In short, it is a cause The cause of heaven against hell. Nay, it is a cause for which the Son of God came down from his celestial throne and expired on the cross. Now, Puritans always have a way with words. And we might read this and think, this is excellent hyperbole written to inspire a nation during wartime. Especially because it was words like this that made America in its early days exactly what it would later become. And yet, I think there is something much more than hyperbole happening in these words. And it's something that when we start paying attention to it, it's pretty frequent even today and actually a bit troublesome. What Cataltus does here any theologian or any preacher should actually know better than to do, which is to say that my cause, my politics, and God's cause, God's politics, are one and the same. But Cataltus goes beyond just that normal sort of enmeshment between my will and God's will. He goes even further beyond just saying that our causes are the same. He says that this is indeed a reason that Jesus came down from heaven, became incarnate, died on the cross, and resurrected from the dead in order that the American experiment might succeed. He is so specific that this is a reason for the Incarnation, and what is most especially troubling is that words like this, theology like this, have been translated down through the eras, even to today in American Christianity. Catalsus' idea was not unique to him at the time, Right? Through every empire that has had religion at its side, there has been an appeal to the fact that God's, the God or the God's wills must bless us. It is the specificity of his tying of Christianity to nationhood that particularly bothers me, but it's not new. In fact, for most people who had identified to be Christians through most of our country's history, or most of European history, there has been the idea that there is God's divine will and that there is human governments, human nations, and that, in fact, these two are not actually separated at all, but that they are intertwined, enmeshed, and implicated in one another such that you cannot really pull them apart in any meaningful way. This idea, though, This enmeshment of my will and God's will, or we talked about that last week, right? But at a larger level of my nation's will, of my politics' will and God's will, this enmeshment is now being questioned particularly by younger evangelicals who have grown up their whole lives hearing from their exer and boomer parents and even more clearly from their elder grandparents that in fact America is a Christian nation, and that what we do is blessed by God in the way that ancient Israel's nation and politics was blessed by God. But they are now beginning to question it. But the problem is, when you're enmeshed like this, you cannot really pick it apart anymore. And so many of these young evangelicals, not just young evangelicals, but most of them happen to be young, beginning to question the enmeshment of church and state, are now wondering if I actually deconstruct my faith, if I deconstruct and ask the question, what does it look like for me to take my faith off the shelf, re-examine it, ask questions about it, and particularly to ask questions about its enmeshment with American mythology, will there in fact be anything left? That is distinctively Christian. Is it possible to extricate our faith from American politics and culture wars at this point without actually destroying Christianity? How many Christians would be left? How many churches would be left? For 2022, uh, I am going to be going through the book of First Corinthians. And what we're going to do is, Paul in this letter, in this book, it's it's originally a letter, what he's doing is he is helping the Corinthians look at their faith, take it off the shelf, re-examine it, deconstruct it, and ask, is what you believe really worth believing anymore? And if it is, what does it look like for your life to change, to challenge the myths that you were raised with? What does it look like to pick your faith apart and see what's left standing? The really nice thing about 1 Corinthians is it turns out that Paul does, in fact, need to deal with this ball of mess because the reality is that the Corinthians were just as nationalistic, if not more so, than we are. The Corinthians, were the the, the city of Corinth was a city of about 600,000 people, which is a massive city for the ancient world. It was the capital of the region. So basically you need to think like the Nashville, okay? It's the Eagleton. Okay, Parks and Rec fans. Originally it was founded by the descendants, a descendant of Zeus. It was home to a long line of ancient kings until it was destroyed by the Romans and then later built by, rebuilt by Julius Caesar about 100 years before Paul. Built in Roman imagery, in fact, their national pride is seen during the time of Paul, in fact, in the fact that both they adopted Latin as their official language and they adopted Roman architecture and Roman structures of governance. So this is a people who are taking pride in their national identity. Further, Cicero called Corinth the light of all Greece. The philosopher Plutarch commented on Corinthian civil and individual pride. Their prosperity was believed to be a blessing. Do not miss this. Their prosperity was believed to be a blessing from the gods because of their patriotism. So this is a perfect primer, a perfect example, a perfect case study for us as patriotic people, as a people who many of us were raised in churches that had American flags waving. It is a a perfect opportunity for us to step back and ask, what is Paul going to say to them and what might Paul have to say to us? So what does Paul say to them? Well, he begins really subtly but I think really powerfully. He begins by asking the question, oh, there we go. He he is going to ask the question, can you be a good Christian and a good citizen at the same time? And what he is ultimately going to argue is to be a good Corinthian is not always, in fact, compatible with being a good Christian. That, in fact, there must be some level of disconnect between them. The enmeshment hurts not only Corinth, but it hurts their Christian witness and their Christian morality. In fact, it changes their Christian theology. So how does he do this? Paul says this. He begins by prying apart the Plato. He says this. He addresses his letter to the church of God in Corinth, set apart in Christ. Now, this does not immediately sound to you very politically subversive. But there is incredible power in what Paul is doing here. We're going to talk more next week about this idea of set apart. But for now, I want you to notice the two locations where he places them. He places them, the church of God, in Corinth, set apart in Christ. He places them in two locations at the exact same time. It's not one location, it's two locations. You are in Christ and you are in Corinth. At the same time, suggesting from the beginning that for Paul, when they are asking the question, well, should I, to be a Christian, do I need to abandon politics? Do I need to abandon my life in my city? Do I need to abandon how I am uh, involved in my city in order to be set apart and holy? The answer is going to be no. You don't have to abandon your city and you don't have to abandon your politics. You don't have to become Amish. You don't have to become a separatist. You don't have to move out into a mountain and be into a hermitage and be lonely out there because you don't want to be influenced by culture. Paul says that to be in Christ is at the same time to be in Corinth. That in fact, you are Christ's representative In Corinth. So here are the implications of this. Paul is saying that they are the body of Christ in a city that does not know Christ. It is not an enmeshment where they can't be picked apart and distinguished from one another, but what he is rather saying is that you belong in Christ first. That that is your identity. But as such, you also are Corinthians and therefore you are Christians in Corinth. Your identity as Christians and as Corinthians are one and the same, but not in a way that can't be separated out. Paul is essentially... I keep grabbing the wrong one. Paul is essentially saying that because they are in Corinth, they cannot be estranged from Corinth. But because they are in Christ, they cannot be enmeshed in Corinth. This is the tension of the Christian life. To not be estranged from our neighbors, but also to not be enmeshed in all of their drama. The big idea would be this. This is what I'm going to try to communicate. Engagement without estrangement. Engagement without enmeshment. This, I think, is the right place for Christians to exist and live in the world of American politics. We are engaged. We are passionate. We care. Because, listen, the Greek word for The Greek word that politics come from is is the word polis. Polis just means city in Greek. It has to do with the collective life of the city. So anytime you do something that has to do with the collective life of the city, on some level, you're being a political people. Okay? So there's no way for us to avoid it. Guess what? Even people who go live in a monastery out on a mountain and try to get alone by themselves, they're making a political decision. They're choosing to abandon the the polis, okay? So what Paul is going to do is he's going to talk to us about being engaged in our city without being estranged from it, but to be engaged in our city in a way that doesn't get enmeshed in it so that we can, in fact, see what it means to be Christian and not just baptize everything the the city of Corinth does, okay? So... Paul is essentially going to have to correct two misunderstandings about politics. The first is that Paul has to correct the assumption that they should be estranged from politics. Let me say this another way. To make the claim, as Christians do, that Jesus is Lord is itself a political statement. Lord is not a religious term that Christians adopted. Lord is a political term that the first Christians adopted. You call Caesar Lord. You call your master Lord. You call people in higher authority than you Lord. So when Christians call Jesus Lord, they are inherently making a statement about politics, how politics should operate, and who the real ruler of the universe or the city is. But here's the insane thing about Christian politics. To say Jesus is Lord is profound because Jesus is Lord for Paul by virtue of his crucifixion and resurrection. Right? We saw all this week about how worldwide governmental politics work. If you don't do what I want you to do, then I'm going to invade your country with my army and see if my army is superior to you. And then everybody else says, no, no, don't do that. What we really need to do, listen, if you're going to do that, we're going to also have to respond with our own power. World politics operates on the axis of power, of coercion, and violence. We have seen this all week. But what Paul is saying is that Jesus Christ is Lord over the polis by virtue of his death and by virtue of his resurrection. In other words, Paul calls Lord The one who Caesar killed. Caesar, the lord of Rome, killed his own lord, according to Paul. Crucified his own ruler. And it was by virtue of that crucifixion that he proved he was in fact the ruler. Because he did not come to rule the creation through coercion and violence but by giving up and surrender. This is the danger of Christian politics. What does it look like for us to go into the political fray in our partisan country, of our country of racism and classism and homophobia? What does it look like for us as a people to go into that partisan fray with our wounds? Because this is what Paul is saying. You are an ambassador, a representative of Christ in your politics, which means that you engage politics the way Christ did. And that is why nobody wants Jesus for president. And that is why... I'm not sure that we've had a genuinely Christian precedent despite the fact that some have been anointed as such. When Jesus dies at the cross and becomes Lord through that, he rearranges our politics and he turns it on its head. He said, you want to know what God's kingdom, what God's politics is like? Here's what he says. Blessed are the poor For theirs is the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is not heavenly language. It's political language. Blessed are the poor. He's turning our politics on his head right there. Who are the people that we should look out for the most? The poor, the vulnerable, the marginalized, the outcast. These are the people that our politics ought to be concerned with. I don't have a right to stand up here and tell you to vote for Republicans or Democrats. I think that's probably illegal for me to do so. But what I am telling you is that your politics need to take into account, if you are going to be a Christian engaging the political sphere, they have to take into account who are the people most marginalized in our, in our contemporary political system. This is why the church must say Black Lives Matter. This is why the church must say that trans kids' lives in Texas matters. This is why the church must also say Ukrainian lives matter. The church must point to the vulnerable and say, this is where the kingdom of God is. This is what my politics is going to look like. But here's the thing. When you do that, you are going to turn the world upside down at Thanksgiving dinner. You know it. And you know how I know it? Because Paul's second way of dealing with this, Paul corrects the assumption that they should be enmeshed in national identity. You see, here's the problem. The way partisan rhetoric has worked in our country is that I am so enmeshed in my political partisanship and you are so enmeshed in yours that to question me is essentially to say, well, you're not a good American anymore. They're so ingrained in one another that if you don't vote for like me, you're just not American. You could see this rhetoric all over social media. People's filters are lost and they're saying the quiet part out loud. The stuff that was, the the racist stuff that was only ever shared around Thanksgiving dinner is now being spouted on social media. And in some ways, obviously that's terrible. In some ways, it's good because now the hearts of this people are laid bare and we're seeing who they really are. And what Paul is going to do is he's correcting the assumption that the church and national identity are one. You know how I know this is a problem? I mean, not only social media. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a trigger warning here, so you're going to want to just take a deep breath and settle in, because I'm about to use a pretty controversial example. You remember in 2008, just before 2008, Barack Obama was running for president, and there was this huge scandal because of something his pastor, Jeremiah Wright, said. Do you remember this? Do you remember what Jeremiah Wright, Obama's pastor, said? He said, God damn America. And here's the thing. People in my church and probably in your church were flipping out. They were flipping out over this. How could you ever say that? How could a pastor ever say something like that? And we're talking about conservative evangelical white folks who like are happy to condemn America for almost you know something like abortion but they just didn't like a black man saying it and saying it about things they didn't agree with because what he actually said that they never quoted was he said god damn America if she doesn't start taking care of the poor god damn America if she doesn't actually start uh caring for the most vulnerable the marginalized and particularly for him black folks Now, here's the thing. You don't have to agree with him. You don't have to think he's wrong or right. You can think this is a totally inappropriate illustration. But here's what I want to say. This is the point. That people started freaking out without even looking at context, without even asking, is it possible he's right? That our immediate reaction was a knee-jerk condemnation Suggest the degree to which we are not sufficiently separating our national identity and our faith. He did this on purpose in order to demonstrate that particularly white folks do not know how to separate their faith from their national identity, and black folks have rarely had the privilege to bring those things together in one. Paul is correcting the assumption that these things should be enmeshed. So here's what I want to do. I'm just I'm going to end here. And I wanted to give a positive example of what this might look like. And so this week, as I was I just was trying to read a ton on Ukraine. How is the church in Russia? How is the church in Ukraine responding? Uh, and particularly, those folks are not. They're not caught up in our culture wars, right? Uh, they're actually Eastern Orthodox, so a long time ago they split from the Catholic Church, okay? Um, but I came across this prayer, uh, or, the, or this, this three-paragraph encouragement uh, to the people of Russia and the people of Ukraine from a priest in the Eastern Orthodox Church. And what I want you to notice here is that he makes very clear political statements, and he makes very clear religious statements, but he never assumes that they're enmeshed, and he also never assumes that they're disengaged. They converse, they converse with each other, but they're not enmeshed with one another. As the primate of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, I address you and all citizens of Ukraine, all citizens, we're making a political statement here. A disaster has happened. Unfortunately, Russia has launched military operations against Ukraine, and at this fateful time, I encourage you not to panic. Be courageous and show love for your motherland and for each other. I urge you, first of all, to intensify repentant prayer for Ukraine, for our army, and our people. I ask you to forget mutual strife and misunderstandings and unite in love for God and motherland. In this tragic time, we express our special love and support to our soldiers who stand guard and protect and defend our land and our people. May God bless and keep them. Defending the sovereignty and integrity of Ukraine, we appeal to the president of Russia and ask him to immediately stop this fratricidal war. All political statements, right? Being very political. The Ukrainian and Russian people come from the same baptismal font. And a war between these people is a repetition of the sin of Cain who out of envy killed his own brother. Such a war is not justified either by God or by people. I call on everyone to common sense which teaches us to solve our earthly problems in mutual dialogue and mutual understanding and I sincerely hope that God will forgive our sins and the peace and God's peace will reign on our earth and throughout our world. I love this. This is a fantastic walking of the tightrope between being engaged but not being enmeshed. He can say a contrary word. He can say a word from the outside that says the church has a specific responsibility to call Ukraine and Russia to repentance while also speaking to the violence coming from Russia and saying, stop it. He ties their, even their national identity into the Eastern Orthodox baptismal font. You don't have to agree with it. You don't have to even like all of it. I think it's just a model for how it can be done well in a way that actually addresses particular partisan concerns, or political concerns. This, I think, gives us an option, I will be interested to see how the Eastern Orthodox Church continues to respond or not respond, uh, particularly its manifestations in Russia and Ukraine. It would be really interesting. Um, For now, I know that we are in a place where we're asking questions about deconstructing our faith, and one of those things involves picking apart our faith and asking, where does national identity end and Christian identity begin? what I think we are called to be more than American or more than Democrat or more than Republican, not that those aren't important, they are, but I think we are first called to be Christians who exist in a common baptismal font, who have allegiances to each other and have commitments in our baptism vows to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves, including political forms.